why don't we begin with a prayer? Maybe we can invoke the intercession of the, uh, the Mother of God for uh, each of us, for our evening together, and for our country. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So uh, the, the topic for tonight is um, vectors to God, which sounds sort of um, strange and science fiction-esque, uh, but in fact it's very practical and something that you all know more about than you realize. Uh, I was teaching a class with a bunch of Nashville sisters in it. I don't know if any of you know the Nashville Dominican sisters. They are traditional uh, religious order. They teach uh, mainly in primary schools, and they come and study with us uh, in the summers. So I was teaching a course on the theological virtues with the sisters, and they, um, they told me at the end of the course, Father, you must be fascinated with space because you're always talking using like space metaphors, like vectors to God. So anyway, you get to experience a little bit of that tonight. I, I will try not to use too many science fiction metaphors. But we could start this talk by uh, a question. It's not just a rhetorical question. I mean this actually as a real question. And if you were coming to see a spiritual director, probably he would start off by asking a question like this. How are you doing, but not just in general, how is your soul? What is the state of your soul? How is your spiritual life? I don't mean your spiritual life meaning like the kinds of things that you do, but I mean the principle of supernatural life in your soul. How is it doing? Is it getting stronger? Is it getting weaker? Is it in danger of flickering and going out? That's actually what this talk is about. It's about trying to understand what is the principle of spiritual, supernatural life in our lives. And what, uh, so understanding the nature of that life is very important. One of the most important things we can know about the spiritual life. And then understanding what helps it and what hinders it. So, uh, if you were designing this talk to get a lot of clicks on, I don't know, whatever uh, Facebook uh, advertisement or something, if you're trying to design clickbait, which um, Katie Bryzek, who works uh, for the Thomistic Institute and runs our Facebook page, is always trying to come up with, it could be something like three weird tips to have an angelic soul or something like that. I mean, that's, uh, so I was trying to come up with that's not a science fiction metaphor. It's, I'm trying to be even more current. Okay, so what is the real measure of your holiness? And how can you grow in holiness? The very first and most obvious but common mistake that people m make typically when asked this question is they evaluate the quality of their spiritual life, and I mean the principle of spiritual vivality, life, being alive, by things that are external. It might be by how much time you spend in prayer, or how many rosaries you say, or how often you go to Mass. It might be 
the charitable works that you engage in. It might be uh, your emotional state. It might be some feeling that you have that God is close to you or that you are close to him or that you really are devoted to him. You might think that a good measure of your spiritual life is whether you have sensible consolations when you pray. You might think that a good measure of spiritual growth is whether you start having mystical visions. Now, there might even be some people here who've had mystical visions, for all I know. But in fact, none of those things are a good measure of your spiritual life. The only real measure of your spiritual life is your closeness to God, your friendship with Him, and that means, in a very practical and concrete way, your possession of the theological virtues. The theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. If you have those theological virtues and they're active in your life, then you are spiritually alive. And if those are getting stronger, then you are growing spiritually. And if you don't have those things in your life, even if you have all of those other external manifestations or even emotional consolations, you may not, in fact, be spiritually alive. So what exactly are these theological virtues? Why do we call them virtues? Why do we say that they're theological? So we're going to start with that. But maybe we can start by clarifying what they are not. And I've already talked a little bit about what they are not. But the two most important things to say that they are not, they are not feelings or emotions. They're not interior psychological states. They're not based on psychological experiences. That's the first point. The second point, they are not something that you can generate. They don't come from you, ultimately. Now, we have to qualify that because you are given these virtues and then you have them in a stable way and you can exercise them. So in that sense, they are yours. But they don't come from you. They must be infused by God. That's why they are supernatural. So more about that in a minute. Let's look at the first text on this handout. Does everybody have a handout? I gave you just, these are just a couple texts from Aquinas that give us a little orientation to our subject. So in his great, uh, I assume most of you know who St. Thomas Aquinas was, a great medieval Dominican philosopher and theologian, one of the great figures in Western civilization and one of the great uh, theologians in the Catholic tradition. So St. Thomas, being a Dominican, is especially uh, close to us at the Thomistic Institute. We take our name from Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and his great work, one of his greatest, is the Summa Theologiae, or the, the Summary of Theology, is literally what that is, if you wanted to translate it into English. Uh, so the, the Summary of Theology is is really meant to be a summary. And um, when, sometimes when people begin to read it, they say, this doesn't seem very simple or summary to me. Uh, in fact, it's very deep. 
but it is actually summary compared with some of, the other, uh, of Aquinas' works. In any case, the first text that I'd uh, like to uh, take a look at with you is the first point in the Summa where he takes up explicitly the treatment of the theological virtues. He's already talked about other virtues, natural virtues, for example. But now he's asking, are there theological virtues? This is from what's called the Prima Secundae, question 62. So let's just uh, read this very briefly. Through virtue, man is perfected so that he can act for the sake of his happiness. Very important first point. Our virtues have to do with the goal of life, getting to the goal, which Aquinas says is our perfect happiness. Now he is now going to make a very important distinction about our happiness. The next line. Now man's happiness is twofold. One is proportionate to human nature, namely a happiness that he can obtain by means of his natural principles. That, that means what we could say is kind of natural happiness. You could imagine uh, someone who doesn't, has never encountered Christianity, maybe doesn't think much about the supernatural goal of his life, but we can understand certain natural goods to live in community, to be friends with people, to uh, be in love with a spouse, to raise a family, to build a home, to live in a, in a well-ordered city, to have a winning NFL football team. These are elements of natural happiness. I'm from Seattle. I'm very happy that we have a winning football team. It hasn't always been the case, but that's, a, that's an element of natural happiness. Uh, you know, the people in Boston, they love the Boston Red Sox. Maybe that actually is verging on a rival religion, I think, sometimes. That's a joke, um, uh, although not entirely a joke. Okay, so, um, so there is a happiness that we can obtain by our natural principles. It's maybe not the most complete happiness, the ultimate happiness, but there, we, we do understand what it means to be happy on the level of just being a good human being. And it's not apart from virtue, by the way. It includes virtues like being just to other people, being prudent to them, being friendly, all these kinds of things we could include in uh, virtues that make sense without reference to a supernatural goal to our life. But Aquinas says that this is not a complete account of human happiness. It's only a partial account because of the sort of being that we are. We are made with a kind of openness towards something that transcends this world. That's the, one of the foundations for our human dignity, that we are capax dei, Aquinas says, capable of God capable of knowing and loving God, of being in communion with him. So this is the second happiness that now he's going to talk about. The other, go back, back to our text, is a happiness surpassing man's nature and which man can obtain by the power of God alone. A kind of participation of the Godhead. And here Aquinas cites a very important line from scripture that comes up again and again in the Summa from the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, verse 4, that by Christ we are made partakers, sharers of the divine nature. Now just stop right there and think about what Aquinas is saying about the possibility for every human being. Every human being can, by the power of God, be given a share 
in the divine nature through Christ. That is the highest dignity of the human being. Now, we can't do it from our natural principles. We wouldn't even know that it was possible if God had not come and revealed it to us. But God does want to give it to us. He wants to give it to us not on our own terms, but as a gift from him by his power. So this is the real goal of the human life. And Aquinas now goes on, because such happiness surpasses the capacity of the human nature, man's natural principles, which enable him to act well according to his capacity, do not suffice to direct him to this happiness. You cannot get there from your own power. It is not possible. Be like trying to will yourself onto the spaceship Enterprise without Scotty beaming you up, right? I, I will not promise to make no science fiction illusions here. You need Scotty to beam you up in Star Trek. And in fact, you need God to energize what is a passive potential in you to know and love him. So Aquinas goes on. Hence it is necessary for man to receive from God some additional principles. These are new things, new principles of action, sort of the, the root of the possibility of a new kind of action that God wants to give to you in a stable way. So that just like you have the power to know and love other people, to be just to them, to be friendly to them, to build a community with them, you have that from your own nature. So now God is going to give you principles that you cannot create, that he gives you from above, that allow you to engage in acts that surpass your nature. So, it is necessary for man to receive from God some additional principles whereby he may be directed to supernatural happiness. These principles are called theological virtues. First, because their object is God, inasmuch as they direct us aright to God. Secondly, because they are infused in us by God alone. Thirdly, because these virtues are not made known to us except by the divine revelation handed down by Holy Scripture. So, what are the theological virtues? They are the principles that God gives to us by which we can be directed to God and, in fact, can attain ultimately to God. It is the vector of our journey to God. That's what the theological virtues are. So, let's talk now briefly about these three theological virtues. This is not on, on the handout that I gave you. The three virtues, faith, hope, and love. They're distinct virtues, and they, they shape the kinds of actions that we're able to engage in in different ways. So let's begin by uh, just doing a brief review of what the theological virtue of faith is all about. Now here, we can start with common misunderstandings. Let's go back to the, one of the common misunderstandings about the theological virtues or about the spiritual life in general that is measured by the state of our emotions. Faith is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. 
It is not measured by how you feel. That is a, a very, very common mistake to make. And it's like spiritual direction 101 that you can be speaking to somebody who comes in saying, Father, I feel like God is not very present in my life. You should not immediately conclude that this person does not have faith. No, faith sometimes is present even when there is no sensible feeling of closeness to God. Now, this actually runs counter to the way we often hear faith spoken about, because often faith is spoken about principally as a kind of inner conviction or feeling of trust. Now, there's something true about that. So I don't want to just say that that's um, completely wrong. But it's incomplete. Faith leads to a kind of trust of the person, and it may be associated with a kind of feeling of dependence on God or closeness to God. But that is not the essence of what faith is. Now, if you were to say that faith is principally a subjective feeling, then you would find yourself in a kind of quagmire. It leads to all kinds of theological dead ends. And here's just a, a couple of them. Um, for example, uh, if you've ever spoken at length to a Mormon missionary who is proposing to you that you should place your faith in the Book of Mormon. Now, as a Catholic, I would say, the Book of Mormon is not part of Holy Scripture. Uh, and we could, we could give arguments about why uh, that is the case. But the, the Mormon missionary will say, well, say a prayer to your Heavenly Father, and if you feel a conviction in your heart that it's true, then uh, it's true for you. And this is a kind of measure of faith, whether you have this uh, feeling in your, in your heart. Even if there may be reasons that someone from the outside is is posing reasons why I shouldn't believe this book. If you feel it in your heart, you should ignore those reasons. Now, sometimes even Catholics think that Catholic faith is a bit like that. But la that leads into all kinds of uh, real difficulties when you want to talk about the relationship between faith and reason. God is the source of both faith and reason. So what we believe by faith can never be contradicted by science or by reason done, done right. So it's, it's very important to say that faith is not just a kind of inner conviction or feeling. In fact, if you were to take that position, then you would also have a hard time distinguishing what Catholics are doing or what Christians are doing from what people in uh, other religions are doing or even people who are believing in some quite wild cults they may have a very strong subjective conviction in something that is just really very false and, and destructive. Uh, I don't know if many of you remember the cult uh, around Bob Jones uh, in uh, Jonestown. This was in the 1970s. A whole group committed mass suicide. In the 1990s, there was another guy, Marshall Applewhite. Maybe some of you remember him. He was associated with the arrival uh, near Earth of the Hale-Bopp Comet. Do you remember this? The Hale-Bopp Comet comes by, I don't know, how every however many hundreds of years or something. Anyway, Marshall Applewhite claimed there was a spaceship traveling behind the Hale-Bopp Comet. 
and that it was going to destroy the earth when the Hale-Bopp comet passed by. And so he convinced all of his followers to, with him, commit suicide with $5.25 in their pocket on a certain day, thinking that then they would be translated to the spaceship and they would avoid the destruction of the earth. Now, those people had a very strong inner subjective conviction that this was true, enough that they placed their lives on the line for it. But it's totally false and, in fact, very bad for them. So we don't want to say that that is all that an act of faith involves, that kind of subjective trust in the message someone is giving us. So when, then what is faith? Well, for St. Thomas Aquinas, faith principally, principally refers either to the act of believing God, who is revealing himself to us, or the virtue, the principle in our soul, the quality of soul. Aquinas uses a technical word, a habit or habitus in Latin, uh, which basically means a stable disposition of soul. So a stable disposition of soul by which we are habitually ready to believe what God says to us when he speaks to us. So for Aquinas, the starting point of faith is not in our subjective conviction or our feelings. It's in God who speaks to us, who reveals himself to us and who moves us to believe him when he speaks. And he speaks in a way that is reasonable. So what he proposes for us to believe coheres with what we know about the world and in fact even transcends it, but in a way that doesn't contradict it. So for Aquinas, there is a harmony between faith and reason and good reason for us to trust objections that are posed to, uh, uh, to the faith, if they are, uh, sorry, rather to, to trust that the faith will be able to respond to any objections that are posed to it from reason, and that it will be able to show that those are either not proven or not reasonable in the end. So in the act of faith, then, we're assenting to God who speaks and Aquinas describes this as receiving a gift from God, a gift of a kind of illumination. Now, you might say, well, this sounds pretty obscure. What exactly is going on in that gift of illumination? Uh, just to use a very simple example, uh, one that I've taken from my confrere in the back of the room, Father Thomas Joseph White, the claim that Jesus is present in the Eucharist, in the Blessed Sacrament. For someone who hasn't received the gift of faith, this is hard to believe. And some people really struggle to believe it. But for someone who has received that gift of faith, and probably most, if not all, of the people in this room have probably received that gift of faith, it isn't hard to believe that. In fact, it can be very easy to believe it. Even a child is capable of making that act of faith. 
What is happening there? God is giving us a higher illumination, a, a kind of light to the mind, not so that we feel that something is true by a kind of movement of our emotions, but rather so that we see that we should believe God who speaks to us, so that we see that we should assent to what he proposes, and that we should trust what God says, because he is perfectly truthful and incapable of deceiving us. So, faith sometimes comes with a kind of emotional consolation, and sometimes not. But what is at the core of faith is that we are believing what God says. We are assenting with our minds to what God says. So faith is not in the heart, but above all, in the intellect. And it's a kind of knowing. We really know God when he reveals himself to us. So St. Augustine talks about faith in a very interesting way. He says that faith takes us to God. We believe into God, is actually the way Augustine puts it. Because when you begin to know God by faith, you have a personal relationship with him. You know something about the interior of God's life. Think about um, some celebrity. Uh, we could just pick one out of the air. Brad Pitt. Suppose that we were a meeting of the Brad Pitt fan club. Uh, maybe it's quite plausible that we have a lot of Brad Pitt fans here. Uh, so suppose that one of, one of you wanted to be the number one fan of Brad Pitt, and you learned everything that you could possibly know about Brad Pitt. You might, by doing your research on the internet or uh, wherever else, be able to find out all kinds of obscure facts about Brad Pitt, where he went to high school, what his homeroom teacher was his freshman year, what his favorite color is or his favorite food, something like that. You can know a lot about Brad Pitt, but does that mean that you know Brad Pitt? It's obviously an important distinction. If you were to show up outside Brad Pitt's house and tell, you know, tell his bodyguard, hey, no, I, I know Brad Pitt, I know Brad, I'm, I'm, you know, and you try to get into his house, what's going to happen to you? He's going to have you arrested. That's stalking, right? Uh, so don't be that kind of number one fan. In, in other words, in order to know Brad Pitt, you don't just know things about him, but you know him. And this is what the virtue of faith gives us with respect to God. Not just knowledge about God, but it's God speaking to us, and not just us in general, but speaking to you. So that when you assent to what God says to you, you now have a relationship with you, with him. And this is to be drawn into God by faith. That's what Aquinas means, or what Augustine means when he talks about that. Okay, so we've talked about faith. Uh, time is passing. Uh, so let's move on to charity. How is charity a vector to God or a measure of our spiritual life? In fact, charity, in a way, if faith is, 
is the beginning of our spiritual life, and it is. You receive the gift of faith. You can't love God until you know at least that he exists. Charity is what really makes our spiritual life alive. Now here, there's lots of confusion because when we're talking about charity, we're not talking about um, doing good things for other people, principally. We're talking about caritas in Latin, that's the root word, which is to say love. We're talking about love. And in our culture, we use the word love an awful lot. And we use it in a lot of uh, very different senses. So if we're going to talk about the theological virtue of love or charity, we need to clarify what we mean. So think about the different ways you can use the word love. Maybe that you have used the word love just in the past day or two. I love that song. I love pizza. Now, I do love pizza, actually. So we could talk about the first level of using the word love by talking about a kind of pizza love. Uh, now, question. When I love the pizza, what am I really loving? Am I loving the pizza for its own sake? Do I, do I desire the good of the pizza? No. In fact, I'm loving what the pizza is doing for me. I love the way it tastes. I love the way it smells. I love the kind of fellowship that I have with my friends when we eat pizza together. But I don't really care about this pizza as if I would be upset, you know, if the dog ate the leftover pizza. Well, I would be upset because I wanted to eat it myself. But once it's become moldy, I, I have no qualms about throwing it in the trash. So what I am loving in that kind of love of pizza is actually what pizza is doing for me. As Aquinas says, this is a kind of concupiscible love. That's a, a love that, that desires in a kind of acquisitive way. And in the end, you can resolve that love into a love of myself. Now that's a very helpful insight, even for our human relationships. When sometimes we treat our friends, we say that we love our friends because of what they are doing for me. That's obviously not the highest level of friendship or of love, but it is a real sense of love. So there is not something false being said when I say I love the pizza. But it's just helpful to clarify what I'm really talking about. Aristotle famously said that you can love someone because of the, the utility that they bring you. That's the kind of lowest level of friendships, friendship of utility. It's like the salesman who is your best buddy while he's trying to sell you a car. He doesn't really care about you. He cares about selling you the car. Then there's a friendship of pleasure, which is a slightly higher level. That's where you actually enjoy the other person's presence. You don't just, it's not like they're just making you feel good, but you, you find them to be a pleasant person to be around. But once again, that is referred back to what the person is doing for you. True love, though, true love desires the good of the other person for his or her own sake. And this is where love has its fullest meaning. So you might think as a, just a human example of uh, a mother with an infant baby. Uh, maybe there are some mothers in the room. All of us have had the experience probably of, of seeing a mother care for her, her baby. What is the baby, what is the, the six-month-old baby doing for his or her mother at two in the morning when he's crying? Not very much. Mom's not getting a lot out of that relationship at two in the morning. 
But does she refuse to get up out of bed because she's like, well, my child is not doing anything for me right now? No, in fact, most mothers, they desire to get out of bed and to take care of their baby, not just because of what the baby is going to do for them, but because they identify my good with my child's good. So what is good for my child becomes good for me. It erases the distance between the two of us. That's why, for Aquinas, love is the source of great unity between persons. Because when I really love someone, I start identifying what is good for that person with myself. Okay, so what does this have to do with the theological virtue of charity? Well, when Aquinas takes up charity, the very first time he talks about it in his formal treatment of the virtue, he starts talking about friendship. It's quite striking. It's very unusual because for the Greek philosophers like Aristotle or Plato, talking about the relationship between human beings and the gods, they said very explicitly, it's not possible for human beings to be friends with the gods. The gods are too far above us. We don't have anything in common with them. You can only have friendships with people who are in some measure equals. We can't be equals with God. Ah, but you see, Jesus changes this. He comes and says in the Gospel of John, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love than this no man has, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. This I command you, love one another. So Jesus changes the equation of the relationship between man and God. He comes to make us friends of God, to make possible real communion, a communion of love, an intimate communion of friendship with God. So look at the second text on that handout. This is where Aquinas talks about what is charity, and he says it is friendship. And it's very uh, interesting, very um, concise treatment of all the things that I've just been talking about. He says, not every love has the character of friendship, but that love, so he's going to distinguish different meanings of love, right? That love, which is together with benevolence, namely, when we love someone so as to wish good to him. So that's the, the core meaning of love. Not what the other person is doing for me, but regarding the good of the other as good for me. I wish his good. If, however, we do not wish good to what we love, but wish its good for ourselves, thus we are said to love wine, or a horse, or the like, or pizza, or that song. That's a, a kind of love, but it's a love of myself. This is not love of friendship, but a kind of concupiscence. For it would be absurd to speak of having friendship 
for wine, or for a horse, or with pizza. Yet neither, he, he goes on, does well-wishing suffice for friendship. It's not enough that you just wish good to the other. You can wish good to Brad Pitt sitting here, but it does not make you friends with Brad Pitt. For a certain mutual love is needed, since friendship is between friend and friend, and this well-wishing is founded on some kind of communication. There needs to be time together, a real communion between each other. Now, here's where we get to the theological virtue of charity. Accordingly, since there is a communication between man and God, inasmuch as he communicates his happiness to us, some kind of friendship must needs be based on this same communication. The love which is based on this communication is charity. And so he concludes, charity is the friendship of man for God. So, what is happening then in charity? It's not just a feeling of love for God, it is, uh, which, which we could, in a way, try to, to gin up ourselves. God has to initiate that friendship. We cannot raise ourselves up to his level. He comes down to our level, and he calls us to be his friends. It's sort of stunning to think of it that way. Now, a few technicalities about charity. God infuses into our hearts a virtue with respect to our will. So as faith is in the intellect, charity is in the will. That means it is a virtue about what we choose, about what we love. And it's a virtue that allows us to love God for his own sake and above all things. It's a wonderful thing to then see how charity arranges the whole of your spiritual life. Because what does it mean? It means that when God gives you the gift to love him above all other things, it makes all of the other loves that you have relative. It relativizes every other sort of love under the love of God. That's why charity orders our lives. Because when you put God first and love him above all, then everything else can fall into its rightful place. This is, in fact, exactly where Adam and Eve went wrong. They were created in a state of grace, with friendship with God. But by being disobedient, they chose something else, something created, symbolized in the Genesis narrative by the apple. They, they chose that fruit, even though God had told them that it was out of bounds. They wanted that fruit more than they wanted their friendship with God. And that created enormous disorder, disorder that we are still coping with. So we have all kinds of disordered loves that we, by our own power, cannot put back to rights. By the gift of charity, God gives us a supernatural means to reorder our lives to God. And when we do that, then our relationships with other people begin to fall into place. This is why there's an order to charity where we love God above all things and then our neighbor for the sake of God, our neighbor as a creature of God. All right, a final word about hope and then we can uh, conclude about some practical tips to grow in these theological virtues. So hope, 
You can think about hope also on the natural level. We could think about the emotion of hope, but as you've heard me say multiple times now, don't confuse the theological virtues with emotions. So what is the emotion of hope like? Well, I don't know how many of you watched the Super Bowl a couple of years ago when the Seahawks were playing the, uh, uh, the Patriots, and it looked like the Seahawks were going to win. They were marching down the field. It was the last play of the game. The Seahawks were on like the two-yard line. We have the best running back in the NFL. You just have to give him the ball, and he's going to run across the goal line, and, and we will have won the Super Bowl. We were down like, I don't know, four points, something like that. I don't remember what the score was exactly. The quarterback threw an interception on the last play of the game, and the game ended. So as a Seahawks fan, hope was surging in my breast. I saw the championship right there, and then I, I fell into despair, you know, after, after I saw, or sorrow, after I saw the loss. You could think about the marathon runner who is running the race, and as he's nearing the final miles, he sees that the guy who's in first place is actually starting to slow down, and he, he begins to think, I, I think I can win this race. And the emotion that surges in his heart to try that much harder to attain the goal, that's the emotion of hope. What is happening in theological hope? It isn't just this kind of surge of confidence. It may come with a surge of confidence, but what it is specifically is trust in God's promises that he will bring us to himself. So we hope in God, not in ourselves. We don't hope in our power. We hope that God, by his power, will bring us to himself. And we hope for God. That is, we don't hope that God is going to get me some uh, benefit in this life. I mean, it's nice if it happens, but he doesn't promise us those kinds of benefits. What does he promise us? Nothing less than himself. And he is the source of every good. So if you have him, you have everything. So the theological virtue of hope is trusting in God's promises and therefore entrusting ourselves to God. All right. How can these virtues grow? We're sort of at the, the end of, of my presentation. But this is a very important uh, issue. We want to use our gifts from God well. We want to grow closer to God. And there are three very traditional ways to talk about how you can grow, how you can obtain an increase in the theological virtues. The first is simply to use what you have. If you are baptized, and if you are in a state of grace, you have all three of the theological virtues. You have them. God has given those principles of supernatural action to you. Are you using them? So make acts of faith, acts of love, acts of hope. Choose to use those virtues. There's a big difference between having the habitual capacity to love God and actually doing it. You can have the habitual knowledge of French. You can have studied French. Maybe you studied abroad and you learned French. French is back in the back of your brain somewhere, but you're not always actually using it. You have habitual knowledge, but sometimes you make it actual by really speaking it. This is what the theological virtues are like. They're given to you, 
as stable capacities, but it's up to you to use them. And when you use them well, you can merit a further gift from God. Now, you don't merit in strict justice because they're always gratuitous gifts, but God desires that when we use his gifts well, that he gives us even more. Think of the parables of the servants who are entrusted with five talents and the master goes away. The one who uses the gift well receives even a whole kingdom. That's what God wants to give us, and that's what the theological virtues are for. The second way to grow in the theological virtues, this is not uh, rocket science. Ask that God give you more faith, hope, and love. This is called praying for yourself. Now, you might feel awkward about praying for yourself. Maybe you feel like you should only pray for other people. Uh, in fact, St. Thomas says the most powerful prayers we can say are prayers for ourselves. Because when other people pray for us, we may have an obstacle. When we pray for other people, there may be an obstacle to the grace that God wants to give that other person. But when you pray for yourself, you, by the very act of prayer, are opening your, your heart to what God wants to give you. So pray. Pray for a growth in holiness in those theological virtues, and God will answer that prayer. That's uh, one of the prayers that you can say God will always answer. He wants you to have those gifts. The third standard way, this is just like Catholic 101, frequent the sacraments. The sacraments communicate grace efficaciously. That is the core of the Catholic doctrine of the sacraments. So when you receive the Eucharist with living faith, God gives you an infusion of charity. Sometimes you will feel it, sometimes you won't. But the reality is there. Think about how much power is in the Eucharist. It is nothing less than Christ himself. And when Christ comes to you, he is uniting himself to you in the most intimate way that he can in this life. So, does that have something to do with friendship with Christ? Friendship with God? Communion with him? That's why we call it communion. You have communion with him. This is what Aquinas' text is talking about. When you have friendship with God, you have to have some communication. This is what is happening when you receive the Eucharist. Be aware of what you are receiving and ask for that love to burn in your heart when you receive the Eucharist. The same is true when you go to confession. If you've had the human experience of you know, a, a, a friend, maybe a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, maybe it's a family member with whom you've had a, a falling out, and the way that relationship can in a strange way be strengthened when you humbly admit your fault and you ask for forgiveness. It has a way of not only restoring what was before, but sometimes even making the bond of friendship stronger. This happens in the sacrament of penance. God loves our humility when we go to him and confess our weakness. He knows we're weak. But when we confess it and ask for his help, then he gives it to us. In the end, then, the life of the theological virtues 
is the life of holiness. And this is the, the final point that I'll make. Uh, actually, the spiritual life is very, very simple. You receive at baptism the gifts of the theological virtues. You receive it when you make a good confession. It's strengthened when you go to communion. Your job as a Christian is not to find some kind of esoteric knowledge about God or have mystical visions. God may give those to you. He may not. For most people, he doesn't. But the real goal is to see what you already have been given and to go deeper into the reality that is within the grace that you receive through sanctifying grace in those theological virtues. When God has given them to you, he has, in a way, already given you everything that you need. So, the problem is not with God or with the theological virtues. The problem is that we are complicated and God is very simple. So, our job is to get rid of all of the complexity in our lives. And sin is the greatest cause of complexity and confusion and find the central things, the very simple and straightforward things that are the most important. And that is to know God, to love him above all things and your neighbor for God's sake, and to place all of your trust in God's promises. That's it. Now, Carthusians, who are monks who live uh, very austere lives way up in the mountains, uh, they live very heroic lives. But actually, this is one of the things that they have grasped very clearly. You don't need most of the things that we have in this, in, in this busy secular world to be successful in the spiritual life. All you need in the end is God and the virtues that he gives to us. So these are the way, the vector, the road, the path to the Father. Christ reveals it to us. The church gives it to us through the sacraments, and our job is simply to receive it in simplicity and to follow the way that he's laid out for us.